Happy Family Day. Nice to see you. Can I say brothers and sisters? Hi, brothers and sisters. So we don't all have the same kind of family, right? We don't all have healthy families. In fact, probably every one of us has some dysfunction in our families. I'm not making any comment about you. I'm talking about Ruth and me and our kids, you know, (laughs) grown kids and grandkids. We're just in a broken world, aren't we? But we have a family, whatever, whatever our sort of family of origin is, we have a family. And that, this is who we are. And you know what? You're in this family, you are actually quite precious. Precious is the word. Precious. Beloved. It's the truth. Well, there you go. You can take it or leave it, but I hope you take it <laughs> as really true. Um, you might have noticed a lot of the songs here this morning were about Jesus. He seems to be kind of the center of everything. And the passage of scripture we're going to look at today in Colossians chapter 2 is really, once again, just building on the notion that we saw last week that Jesus is the exact representation of God, that he is the image of the invisible God. Nobody's ever seen God, right? But Jesus is the exact image of the invisible God. And so we center on him. So some of the songs we've been singing were like the name above every name. The name that's above every other name in the universe would be? That's the name. (laughs) He's the one. And um, singing this, you are good. You are good. You are good. You never let me down. You'll never let me down. I remember when I was a little intolerant. Well, I still am at times, but when I was a little intolerant of repetition in songs, do you know, do you know what I'm saying? Like we, 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 like we sang that before. How come we have to say it again? We already said he's good. How come we have to go over and over? But what I'm finding now is that as I sing that over and over, it goes deeper and deeper into my heart. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, yes, we're good. Yes, I know you're good. I know you're good. Oh. Oh, you are good. In the midst of whatever circumstances of life, yes, you are truly good. Oh, God, you're so good. Jesus, thank you so much. And so those songs are, are meant to go deeper into our hearts and our souls to, to, to love him more and express our love for him more and to experience this deeper. So, Lord, we're grateful to be together here this morning. Thank you for the songs that we've lifted up, lifting up Jesus, and thank you for the beautiful prayer Lord, uh, we, we, we do see you somehow in one another actually very often. And we're thankful for this, Lord. Your grace and your truth lived out in the lives of your people here on earth, the hands and feet of Jesus in the world. And we see this. I thank you for Forest View Church. I thank you for how you have have expressed, you're still expressing yourself through men and women, through the presence of your Holy Spirit in our lives, refining us, Lord, in all our imperfections, prone to wander, Lord. Oh, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. We love you, Lord, very imperfectly. But we pray that this day, as we gather together, we look into your word We sing hymns of praise to you. We join in prayer together that you'll do your refining work in us in the mystery of your Holy Spirit. Refine us, Lord. 
reform must make us more like Jesus, we pray. And I pray that if somebody here this morning who doesn't know Jesus and isn't following Jesus, that the, the, the compelling story of who you are, Jesus, will touch their heart through your Holy Spirit, we pray. And so in Jesus' name, we leave it with you, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. So last week, we started out in the book of Colossians, and we did Colossians chapter 1, and we're going to go to Colossians chapter 2 today. And first of all, I want you to know there's so much in Colossians 2, we could take six weeks to do Colossians 2, but we're going to do it in one week. So here we go. Put your seatbelts on, (laughs) and let's fly. Uh, Last week, we talked about the fact that uh, when, when Paul wrote this letter to these people at the city called Colossae, they were under the domination of the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire had come, and the image of the invisible God that was portrayed was Caesar. Caesar was the image of the invisible God. Obey Caesar. Do what Caesar says. Caesar's ruling. That's, that, was the, that was the idea that was out there in society. And the good news, or the gospel, and actually the, the actual word gospel, was the Pax Romana, that Rome, in conquering everybody, had brought peace into the world, sort of. But it's the kind of peace that says, if you mess with me, I'll kill you. So you better just submit. It's not a very nice kind of peace. Would you agree? Like, I, okay, thank you. So anyway, (laughs) so, and what Paul does, he comes along here and he says, hey folks, there's, another universe beside this universe here. There's another reality over here, and that is that the image, the real image of the invisible God is not Caesar. It is Jesus, the name that's above every other name. Do you see how subversive that would be and how dangerous it would be to say that or to write that at that time? That's subversive to the empire and to the rule that that appears to be there. And the good news is not that The Roman Empire brings peace to everybody by domination and force and everything. But the good news is that Jesus is the one who brings life and peace into the world through not dominance and force and bloodshed of others, but through giving his life and his own blood. This is amazing, isn't it? This is so different and so It's all about Jesus and what he's accomplished through the cross and his resurrection, his life, his death, his teaching, his resurrection, all so powerful. He's the one who brings peace and new life, abundant life, eternal life, and we get this life when we begin to believe in him by faith, and we accept that as a gift of grace to God. We can't work for it, and then we start to follow Jesus, and this is reality this is a wonderful reality. So, um, so we want to take a look and read this passage and to see what can we gain from this passage having uh, said very clearly that Jesus is the one. Now we move into chapter two uh, and we look at what he is saying as a bold, bold truth. So here we go. I'm gonna start reading. Oh, I got my glasses on. I was looking in my pocket for my glasses, right? And they're right here. Sorry, it's what happens when you get old. Uh, Colossians chapter 2. Let me read to you the first few verses. You're going to get it up there, I think. I want you to know 
how much I'm struggling for you and for those at Laodicea. So Paul's writing to these two groups of people, asking him to spread the letter around. And for all who've not met me personally. So Paul hasn't been there, right? He's in, do you know where he is? He's in jail for the sake of the gospel. This triumphant, powerful gospel, and he's in prison. <laughs> you see the topsy-turviness of all this. My purpose is, so why is he writing this? My purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. Now, I want to pause there for a minute because I want you to see this. My goal or my purpose is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love. This is his purpose in writing. So that, and this will be the result then, so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely, Jesus Christ, Jesus Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. For though I'm absent from you in body, I'm present with you in spirit and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. His purpose is that their hearts would be encouraged and that they would be united in love so that they would have the assurance of their faith. So the first question I want to ask is here, how do we gain this deep kind of confidence, this deep confidence in the bold truth of Jesus and his gospel? How do we have this kind of assurance, this assured understanding that's settled for us, that Jesus really is the way? And Paul says an interesting thing here, that when our hearts are encouraged... And when we're united in the love of Christ, that that is the beginning, that's the stage that helps us to know the truth about Jesus Christ. This is really a remarkable statement. How do we get an assured understanding of the absolute truth of Jesus Christ, a settled firmness in our faith and a deep confidence in the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ? He's saying that this deep, settled confidence is rooted most foundationally in two things, in an encouraged heart and in a sense of unity in the body of Christ. Paul thinks that personal despair, if we could think of those two things, okay, encouragement of heart and unity in the body of Christ, Paul thinks that these two things, if we're discouraged, we're going through a time of difficulty and there's no encouragement at all, that's when we're not sure. That's when we struggle with doubt, isn't it, eh? And when we come to church and we see disunity and fighting and arguments and anger and this kind of thing, that rattles our faith as well. So I find this really interesting. It's, it's remarkable that Paul would put it this way. Because um, he's saying that it's hard to be sure of your faith when you're discouraged in heart and when you experience disunity in the body of Christ. That's what he's saying. So Paul cuts through the intellectualism of his time. There was a thing called Gnosticism that was going on that was saying, you know what's most important? It's what you know. It's just what you know. You need to have these facts down and this kind of thing and so on. And there's mysteries that you have to know about these mysteries and so on, secret truths and so on. And um, he's cutting through that 
And he's saying it's not just what you know. It's the encouragement that we bring to one another's hearts, and it's the unity of spirit that we have in the church that is so, so important to building this foundation of knowledge of truth in our lives. We, th- I think the exact same situation is present in our evangelical churches now. Sometimes we think that it's the knowledge of truth that is the most important thing and that we have to define and parse and know all these things and have them all down exactly. We think if we get the theology right, if we have the every point of doctrine precisely parsed out, that that'll be our firm foundation. And so let me pause for a minute. You may think that I'm knocking theology or doctrine or Bible knowledge. I am not at all. I love Bible knowledge. I love theology. I love dealing with these questions and so on. But here's what I believe Paul is saying to us, that we must have our priorities right, that the reason why we study and learn and grow and know things is so that we'll change, so that we'll be able to bring the encouragement of Jesus Christ to other people, and so that we'll be able to have this loving unity within ourselves as a body of Christ, so that when people on the outside look in and they say, how does this happen? How does this, this group of people, who, with this huge variety of people, how do they love one another like this? They say, well, you know what the answer is? The name that's above all names <laughs> is Jesus. Well, um, because a deep-rooted encouragement in our hearts and a loving, united community is the foundation for an assurance of faith that leads us to a greater knowledge of the Lord and of his word and his truth. That's why in Hebrews 3.13, God says to us, let us encourage one another daily, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be discouraged because of sin's hardness. So there's a lot of garbage that comes at us every day and every week. Is this true? Am I the only one? There's a lot of junk happening in the world that can harden us and all this kind of stuff. And we need to encourage one another in the Lord and be encouragers of each other. And that's why Jesus said, a new commandment I give you, that you must, somebody help me? Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And by this, all people will know that you're my disciples, if you have this kind of love for one another. Well, anyway. The gospel is not a set of disembodied statements. The gospel is Jesus. The gospel has a face. (laughs) And that's why we sing these songs to Jesus and declare, Jesus is the way. Trust him. He's the one who died on the cross for us. He's the one who paid the penalty. He's the one who gives us life. So let me, am I too long on this point? I'm going to go on anyway, so (laughs) I hope... Okay, here's, here's, let me put it another way. Why do people leave church, do you think? And why do some people walk away from the faith? Is it because there are intellectual questions that are too deep and can't be answered? Well, maybe for some people it is, but I've not found that, basically. Or is it because 
there's been internal fighting, arguments, judgmentalism. Somebody comes with honest questions and discouragements and nobody pays any attention to them. There's a lack of real compassion and they come looking for compassion in the, in the family of God and rather um, they're really looking for love. People are looking for love everywhere. People are looking for love. So, what, what attracted you to Force View Church? Why have people come to Force View Church over the years? I'd like to suggest a couple of things. Um, that you're a listening community, that you've actually been attentive to the cries of the poor and attentive to the needs of marginalized people and have done marvelous ministry in various places around to people who are hurting. You're a listening community. You are, we are a caring community who walk with people through the difficulties of life, through deep grief. Is this true? That there's a bonding that happens. People are going through struggles and there's this, the love of Christ that binds around people. And that there's a love of truth. There's a love of truth. And uh, it's a love of truth that says, you can ask questions and you can bring your doubts and struggles here. Let's walk through this together. We're not afraid of questions. Jesus was not afraid of questions. Jesus was not afraid of doubts. <laughs> I'm amazed. You come to Matthew chapter 28. At the end of Jesus' life and ministry, he's died, he's resurrected, he's standing on the mountain, his disciples come, and what the scripture says is, and they worshipped him, but some doubted. <laughs> and how could they doubt? They're sta- Jesus, the resurrected Jesus, is right in front of them. <laughs> and but that's just the reality of it. And those are exactly the people that Jesus commissions to go out and make disciples of all people groups everywhere, baptizing them and name the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. Isn't that amazing? So we welcome doubts too. Does this make sense? Okay, maybe that's enough on that point. Let's look at another point, okay? I think there's another one. So, yeah. Since Jesus is Lord, God calls us to keep on following him to build all of our life on Jesus and his truth. So we see this then in chapter, in verse 6. So then, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, that would be by grace, through faith. So continue to live in Jesus Christ, rooted and built up in Jesus Christ, <laughs> strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. This We could spend a lot of time right here in this verse, but let's just say this, that Paul is urging us and God is urging us to soak our lives in Jesus and his truth, to root ourselves, to be deeply, deeply rooted in the truth of Jesus Christ. So that brings us then to the, the next point. And that is, we'll, we'll just keep reading, that Paul warns us that there are competing voices that are going after our allegiance, that are trying to grab our imaginations and our loyalty and wanting us to follow those alternate voices rather than to follow Jesus. So Paul warns us of this. And um, verse 8, See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy. 
There are other voices out there uh, which depend on human tradition and the basic principles of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. Is that up there now? Oh yeah, that's that. Competing voices. So what are these competing voices then? All right? Let's, let's take a look at this. And the first one, I think that he mentions here, is, uh, and that would be the same in our era also, is that um, this common idea that there's, there is no absolute truth anymore. Are you with me? Have you ever heard that before? There's no absolute truth. Everyth- everything is relative. You just have your idea. I have my idea. Other people have their ideas. doesn't matter because there's no absolute truth anymore. So um, in a world where there's no absolute truth, Paul says, and we say, there is absolute truth, and it's Jesus. <laughs> his life, his death, his ministry, Jesus is the fullness of God, and he's absolute truth. <clears throat> Let's look at absolute truth. The postmodern version of truth is that there's no truth at all. Everything is relative. And the thought is, if everybody would just have their own values and their own beliefs, and, but keep all, your, call that, all that stuff in private. Don't talk to anybody about your beliefs or don't share Jesus with anybody or anything like that. Okay. Just keep all that stuff inside your head and just do however you want then if we could just coexist. Have you seen that bumper sticker? Sticker, Not a bumper sticker. It's a bumper sticker. Have you seen it? Coexist. And it's got every religious symbol on it in the coexist thing. It just means, hey, anything goes, everything's just fine. All, all truth is the same truth. And it doesn't really matter, whatever. This is one of the big gods that's out there right now in our world. So, they would say, abandon any idea that you've actually found the truth. Don't ever say that, because that's pretty proud and haughty. And just coexist. And if we just coexist, this will end violence and bring respect to others and stop marginalization and genocide and all the troubles in the world. And you know what? There's an appearance of wisdom to that. Are you with me? There's a lot of people believe that. There's an appearance of wisdom to that idea. Just coexist, just tolerance. That's what it is. The big problem is that if there's no truth, then how do you know the way to peace and love and joy and the goodness of others and the difference between the way that leads to foolishness and abuse and self-centeredness because I want my way? How do you know the difference between the paths of life? It sounds plausible. It looks humble. It actually lays a big guilt trip on you and me whenever we say, oh, there's a, there is an absolute truth, and it's Jesus. Do you know what I'm talking about? It lays a guilt trip on us when we say that Jesus is the truth. But the idea of just to coexist without any absolute truth will fail because it fails to see that the real issue of violence and war and inhumanity of one person to another person, exclusion, 
marginalization goes way deeper than this. It goes to the very problem of the human heart. Our, 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 what the Bible talks about as the sinfulness of our hearts, the very self-centeredness of our hearts that rules for ourselves over others, over and over. It's called sin. So just coexist, or there's no real absolute truth, this does nothing to heal the heart and cannot stop the violence and abuse that's out in the world. Only one thing can, and that's Jesus. That's why he went to the cross. That's why he took all the violence and the scorn and the sin and shame and everything upon himself. And he defeated it when he absorbed it all and took it all on himself. And he didn't win this battle through shedding the blood of other people, but by shedding his own blood on the cross. What a savior. What a savior we have. Now, whenever we talk about absolute truth, I think we, all postmodern people start to get really, really nervous. Because what we've seen is that absolute truth starts to connect with absolute power. And absolute power then starts to connect with, um, with violence against those who don't have our truth and don't have our power. Um, do, did you get that connection? That when we say we have the absolute truth, we're the only ones who have the truth, then if you disagree then we're claiming a position of power over you and we have a right to be nasty to you somehow or other and make you suffer. And you know what? The Bible has been used in oppressive ways over the years. Is this true? It has been. Just check history. The weight of Christian history is too heavy to cover this up. The Spanish Inquisition, the Crusades, there were... Christians who burned other Christians at the stake because these Christians over here, the Anabaptists, said, you know what, you really need to have a profession of faith before you're baptized. Well, and they thought that was wrong, so they burned those guys at the stake. So I'm thinking, too, about Canada. Take the Indian out of the Indian. That became very violent, didn't it? And a lot of it had to do with the church and residential schools and that kind of thing. That philosophy, okay, we're going to overpower them and dominate them. And that tr absolute truth then tends to lean towards absolute power. And absolute power means that we can overpower and be mean to those who don't have our truth. And, and sometimes it happens even within a church that we find we have people with different ideas about theology and so on, and we get in these arguments and try to overpower them and get angry and that kind of thing. A few years ago, it's a good friend of mine, Gord Martin, who, Mike, abs has, has taken over Gord's spot as uh, the director of Vision Ministries Canada, but Gord was in a meeting of a bunch of of leaders of denominations in Canada, and a guy had come up from, let's just say, a country to our south, all right? A big country to our south, on the same continent. But I won't mention any names to protect the innocent. 
But this guy came up, and um, he was saying, do you know what we have to do? We had power in our country before. Christians had power. We had prayer in the schools. We had all kinds of things. We had power, and it's time for us to get that power back. We, it's time for brass knuckles Christianity. And Gord Martin was sitting there listening to this kind of thing. Do you see how absolute truth leads, can lead to absolute power and can lead to violence? And Gord Martin was sitting there, and eventually he just said, I, I'm having a real trouble seeing Jesus go around with brass knuckles on. And anybody disagrees with him, just like this, you know? I'm having a hard time seeing Jesus use force and violence like that. In fact, and I would take it further, can you see Jesus on the cross, hanging on the cross like this for the sins of the world, embracing all of that upon himself, and looking down at the people who put him on the cross and say, you just wait till my father gets a hold of you, you dirty rotten. You, you. What did he say? What did he actually say? Help me here. Father, forgive them, because they don't know what they're doing. They're just doing a lot of ignorant stuff that they just... Father, forgive them. This is the Jesus. Isn't he amazing? Well, and that's what he calls us to be, too. So, um, when Jesus comes to the cross, he overcomes violence with love. It's amazing. What a savior we have. And this is what he's saying here. I better keep moving, hadn't I? In a world where there's no absolute truth, Jesus is the fullness of God and he's absolute truth. Do you know what? He is. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. He's the one. And that is wonderful. And we, we need to say so because it's the truth, the absolute truth. Okay, so let's keep on. Oh, oh, I wanted to say one other thing here. Um, no, let's keep going. Okay, here we are. What false ideas? Oh, uh, well, yeah, I read this before, I think. For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. Jesus really is sovereign. In Jesus you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Now, I'm glad that in the old days, I would have to explain circumcision. I don't have to do that anymore. I can just say, Google it, if you don't understand what that is. But it always means sort of a cutting out, right? A cutting off and so on. So this circumcision he's talking about is that this cutting off of the old patterns of life that we had that weren't honoring to God, cutting those things out, and that baptism, see, your whole self ruled by the, f I lost some, in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self ruled by the flesh was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised through him, through your faith, in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So baptism is this picture of us going down, and we hope to have some baptisms in a few weeks at Easter time. If you've never been baptized, I'd really like to ask you, why not? If you're trusting Jesus and, you're, and you want to live for Jesus, 
why on earth would you not? Because it's this symbol of dying to the old patterns of life. So we go down into the water, plunge down underneath the water as a symbol of death to the old way of life that was killing us anyway. Death to that old way of life. Down we go, buried with Christ, and then resurrected again. By the way, when we push you down, we do bring you back up again, just so you know. And this is a symbol then of being resurrected with Jesus Christ to a brand new way of life. Living with Jesus at the center. Um, Okay, let's keep going. Because there's one more thing that I think we need to say. What false ideas. The second thing is this. In a world that defines us by our shortcomings and failures, God erases the record of our sin and defeats the powers that oppress us. We are alive to a new life because of Jesus and the cross. Well, let's, let's read that passage of Scripture then, okay? When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He really made you alive. He gives you a new definition. You were dead before. Now you're alive in Christ, a new identity. He forgave us all our sins. Having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us, he has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. How incredible. It's gone. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Therefore, do not let anyone... Well, we'll just leave that part for a moment. So, he's taken our sin away. He's nailed it to the cross. And all the charges that were against us, he's taken it away. He, in a world that defines us by our failures, our sins, our weaknesses, our difficulties, and so on, Jesus comes along, he says, I'm going to take all that stuff. I'm going to nail it to the cross. You're forgiven. You're free. You're beautiful, he says. You're my people. Come on, walk with me. There's a new life out here. Let's do this together. And all of the powers, um, all of the powers that were dominant over us before, he's defeated those things on the cross. Not through violence and power, but by accepting the violence that was done against him, paying the price on the cross so that we can be free. We can be forgiven and made new. I remember talking, uh, we were talking about this one day at our old church, and a lady who had just come to know Christ, she didn't have any of the language of the Bible, uh, but she came up afterwards and she said, you know what, I said, oh, I'm so happy to, that Jesus has forgiven me and, and I've, I got a new life in Jesus. I have kind of a resurrected kind of life now. And he, she says, it's, it's sort of like I've been, I've been like born again. She's using biblical language without knowing that it's in the Bible because that's the reality, isn't it? <laughs> We're born again into a new kind of life because of this faith in Jesus Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. He's nailed our sins to the cross. They're gone. They're just absolutely gone. And he declares us brand new people with a brand new identity. So there's one last point, and here we are. In a world, oh, before I leave this B point here, okay, if you don't know that your sins can be erased, and if you're living with guilt or you're struggling with some kind of a 
an addiction or a sin problem that's really weighing you down, would you know that Jesus does this? He, he, he forgives. He takes that stuff away and he gives a newness of life. You need to know this. Here's the last thing. In a world looking for more and looking for fullness, and everybody's looking for more and looking for fullness, you know where to find it? The riches of wisdom and knowledge are not found in religious rules. And that's what the rest of the passage is about, if we had time, is there's talking about um, uh, circumcision and making rules about certain days of the week when you're supposed to do it. Even the Sabbath is in here. And do you realize how upsetting this would have been to the early Jewish believers who would say, you can't, you can't toy with the Sabbath. It's right here in the Bible. You can't, there are laws about the Sabbath. You can't do work on the Sabbath. Or circumcision. You've you got to be circumcised. It's right there in the Bible. He's saying, no, you know, there's a newness with Jesus. There's a newness with Jesus. So, religious rules, this fullness and moreness of life is not found in consumerism. Consumerism is this idea, you know, happiness is just one purchase away. If you would just buy this thing, you you will be truly happy. Last week, I made a stupid comment from this pulpit about an AMG. Does anybody know what an AMG is? Okay, it's a Mercedes-Benz racing motor, right? <laughs> it's fast. I got a buddy who's got one, and uh, I made a stupid comment about thinking that you're a bigger person or a better person because you have certain kind of sheet metal wrapped around you when you're going down the road. That was actually quite a cruel thing to say. I want to apologize this morning. Because my friend who has a Mercedes AMG, and will it ever boot, I tell you, he is one of the most generous Christians that I know. He has given more money to the work of God. I love this brother. He's a great, great guy. And, and for, for summer camps, and for church, and for building projects, and mission projects, and so on, this guy has done so much because God has blessed him with money and he uses his money for the glory of God and he bought an AMG as well for his wife. But his wife prefers the other car, so he drives the AMG. <laughs> okay, so, but you see, the, the, the richness of life is not found there. That's the point. Are you with me? Okay. And it's not found in entertainment. I work all week for the weekend. Let's entertain me. That's not... It is not found in comfort. We talked a bit about this last week. Just, okay, this makes me uncomfortable. Even this whole conversation makes you uncomfortable, maybe. But it's not about comfort. It's about honoring the Lord and following the Lord with all we have. And individualism. Individualism is this thing that really, I think, is mostly about comfort because I don't want to get into the lives of other people because it's messy when you do that. And I don't, it's not comfortable for me to be in somebody else's mess. But this is our calling to, we're, we're a body, a family, and we love one another, and we walk with one another through all of life. So, where is more and fullness found? Jesus Christ alone. I don't know if you agree with me or not. I heard an amen. <laughs> it's just the absolute truth. What kind of a people does God want us to be here at Forest View? a people who are so centered in Jesus and his ways 
and full of grace and truth, just like Jesus, that people from the outside will say, my, how they love one another and how they love the Lord. How do I get into that? Lord, help us, we pray, as we digest this and soak it in. Because we love you and we want to follow you. And we know that all, all the stuff that we're really chasing after are false gods. And we want to follow you fully, Lord, totally in every part of our life. Would you alert us to the false gods in our own mind, in our own thinking, these things that have captured our imagination that we're chasing after that aren't going to give us what we need because you're the one who gives us life, eternal life, abundant life, Lord. And I pray that you will fill us up with this knowledge of Jesus in whom is all the wisdom and knowledge of God and that we will walk with you as your faithful followers. And Lord, as we prepare our hearts to take from this table now, this bread and this cup, we remember that it's because of what you did on the cross, Lord Jesus, taking all of the violence and the abuse and the sin and the division and and the racism and everything of the world upon yourself, all the sin, to let it hurt you as much as it could, and you outlasted it and paid for it all so that we can be forgiven and made new. And we want to worship you as we eat this bread and drink this cup. So prepare our hearts, Lord, as we examine ourselves now. We are unworthy on our own to eat the bread that drops from your table. But you, oh, by your mercy and grace, you've forgiven us, you call us your children, your beloved sons and daughters, and we're amazed at your grace. So prepare our hearts now um, as we prepare ourselves for this celebration of your amazing grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.